This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 422. Hi, I'm Chris Brogan, author of The Freaks Shall Inherit the Earth. And the good news is you're well on your way because only a freak would listen to this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend Jeff Brown. Despite the overwhelming amount of resources for time management and work-life balance, the ability to manage all our worthy pursuits can often feel frustratingly out of reach. The reason for our struggle is that productivity and time management systems focus on individual habits rather than more meaningful and lasting lifestyle changes. But as it turns out, there is a better way to reach our full potential. Hi there, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth, because I believe that intentional and consistent reading is key to success in business and in life. Today, we're being joined by author Jordan Rayner. His brand new book is called Redeeming Your Time, Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive. And if there were any more P's in the title of that book, I'd, I'd have plosives all over the place. (laughs) I'm going to ask Jordan to share what he means when he says peace of mind is not the result of what we do, but the source, the importance of using one commitment tracking system, and why your email inbox is a terrible tool for this, practical tips for dealing with all the noise in our daily lives, and much more. Hi, my name is Jeff. Did I say that already? And I'm a serial note taker. I save notes on paper, in numerous digital apps, and inside books. I am proud of my note-taking, in part because I do so much of it. Quantity rules the day in my mind. The more notes I take, the more productive I feel. There's just one problem. Okay, maybe several. The usefulness of my notes is another matter entirely. I either struggle to find what I'm looking for when needed, or what I do find is of little value, often because there's no context around it. Can you relate? Well, I've got some good news. A couple of years ago, I discovered the disciplines of personal knowledge management, PKM, linked thinking, and the second brain. And since then, I've seen the impact that having a system for capturing, organizing, and distilling my notes can have on my output, and it is huge. Uh, For example, I languished under the weight of a, someday I'll write a book, for years. But it wasn't until I learned how to effectively deal with my notes that everything began to truly change with regard to my productivity. How? Well, my PKM system ensures I no longer begin projects with a blank page. Now, you may not have a goal to write a book, but we all create, every single one of us. And all of it starts, whether we realize it or not, with writing. Writing is thinking. Rather than begin with the proverbial blank page, the first thing I do is open my personal knowledge management system. I use Obsidian as my central hub. There I find not just a plethora of thoughts and concepts originating from the minds of others, but my personal insights and ideas generated by those thoughts and concepts. My projects then often become an exercise in simply piecing together the notes I find there, what I've already created one baby step at a time over weeks, months, and sometimes years into a cohesive narrative. And with just a bit of editing, I have a well-thought-out thesis ready to share, a solid argument, a newsletter article, a presentation, podcast episode, and that's my goal for you. Today, I'm announcing for the first time publicly my five-week note-taking mastery cohort launching in June and extending slightly over into July, where I'll help walk a small group of passionate note-takers, people like me, through the note-taking techniques I've learned to not only increase my note-taking quantity, but the quality of my notes as well. 
Now, as part of this cohort journey, we'll work together to build your own second brain or personal knowledge management system, a system that will forever change how you capture, organize, and distill your notes. I believe that within three to six months of completing the cohort, your personal knowledge bank will likely be more valuable to you than all your previous year's worth of notes combined. How is that possible? Well, because you'll be able to find what you need when you need it because your notes will no longer be lost in a sea of other notes. You'll more easily connect seemingly disparate notes across time and varying disciplines. You'll make sense of your notes because they're written as if they'll be leveraged by someone else, as in future you. Think of all the notes you've captured in the past right now and remind yourself of how rarely you make use of them. How can I be so sure you rarely go back to your notes? Well, I'd estimate that nearly 100% of the people I've quizzed about this topic admit as much. It's a nearly universal problem, and I want to help you solve it. You can find out all the details at readtoleadpodcast.com slash cohort. Now, you need to know at the time I'm publishing this episode, I don't know if there are 15 spots left, 10 spots left, five spots left, one spot left, or zero spots left. But I encourage you to go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash cohort right now so you can either get in on the cohort and attend these live weekly sessions with me and other members or approach it like a course and get access to all of the recordings after the fact. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash cohort. All the info you need is there, readtoleadpodcast.com slash cohort. But if you have any questions, hit me up, but make it fast, Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Jordan Rayner is a serial entrepreneur and national best-selling author who has helped millions of Christians around the world connect the gospel to their work through his podcast, devotionals, and books called To Create and Master of One. He also serves as the executive chairman of Threshold 360, a venture-backed tech startup that has built the world's largest library of 360-degree virtual experiences of hotels, restaurants, and attractions. A highly sought-after speaker on the topic of faith and work, he has spoken at Harvard University, South by Southwest, and many other events around the world. His new book is called Redeeming Your Time, Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive. I want to call it his new book. It's actually not his new book. Um, he's got a newer one out than this one that we'll talk about in a little bit, but the book we're diving into today is Redeeming Your Time from Jordan Rayner, Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive, and it is wildly awesome. <laughs> Jordan, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. You're very kind, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A very practical book. I've read a lot of productivity books. This is now a taken position at the top of my list, and I don't say that lightly. I recommend that everybody read it, whether you view the world from a biblical perspective or not. There's a lot to be gained here. And something that caught my attention right away in the book is this idea of, of peace of mind and where it falls in the order of things. Talk about what you mean when you say that peace of mind is not the result of what we do, which I think is how most of us think about it, but it's actually the source. Yeah, it's a great question, Jeff. So I spent 10 years as a tech entrepreneur, very type A. So as you can imagine, I have read pretty much all the perennial sellers in this time mm. management productivity category. And honestly, my biggest problem with them was how they approach this concept of peace. 
right? Mm-hmm. So every time management book is trying to give you the reader peace. The problem is the way the path that the authors prescribe to getting it. They say, essentially, hey, you're feeling swamped and overwhelmed. Follow my system. And oh, by the way, do it all right away and do it perfectly. <laughs> and then at the end of this road, you're going to find peace, mm. right? And I believe that you got to figure out a way to start with peace, to make peace not this thing you're searching for in this wild goose chase as you do time management exercises, but to have peace that exists outside of how productive or unproductive you are. And so for me, that's my faith, right? That's my faith in Mm. Jesus Christ, which again, even if you're not a Christian, this book can definitely serve you well. But for me, I know that I have peace with God regardless of how productive I am. So I do time management exercises, but I do them in response to the absolute secure peace I've already been given, rather as a means of searching for and working for and attaining peace, because I think we all know that that's a wild goose chase that is always elusive. Mm. There's a question that just came to my mind that I I maybe should have started with, but I know there's somebody thinking right now, Jordan, does the world need another time management book? What would you say to that person? It's a question I asked when (laughs) I decided I wanted to write this, because there are 60,000 books in this category on Amazon right now. Wow, That's a crazy number. Mm. And there's two reasons why I I, I think the world needs another time management book. Number one, because I've never read one that really connects all the pieces of the time management puzzle together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They all focus on parts of the problem, but not the whole thing. And one of my audacious goals of this book was yeah, I, I, I used to sit down and have coffee with people and they tell me they're swamped and overwhelmed. And I would recommend a dozen books that they absolutely <laughs> had to read to solve this problem. And that's the last thing they want to hear. So it's like, all right, let's take the best of these 12, 20, 30 books, however many it was, mm-hmm. and let's distill them down to their essence and connect them all together. And that's what redeeming your time is. So that's the first problem, just this lack of cohesion and comprehensiveness in the time management category. The second problem that I wanted to solve here and why I thought the world needed another book in this genre is that I have never read a time management book that accounted for how the most productive person who ever walked the earth manages time. And I think Christian or not, it's pretty hard to dispute that Jesus of Nazareth was the most productive human being in history. Right now, he lived in the first century. So, of course, he didn't walk around with a to do list uh, or a smartwatch. But listen, we've got four biographies of the life of Jesus. They're the first four books of the New Testament of the Bible Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. And while they don't show him with a to do list, they do show Jesus dealing with distractions at work and fighting for silence and solitude and seeking to be busy without being hurried. In other words, they show him dealing with the exact same challenges that you and I face today. So that's why I wrote Redeeming Your Time. I wanted to look at the life of the most productive person ever and say, what are the timeless time management principles here? And those are the seven principles in this book. And then what I did was I connected those seven principles to more than 30 hyper practical practices showing you exactly how to live out those principles in our modern context. And some of what you're talking about is getting at principle number one, start with the word. And you made reference to this. Most of us don't tend to read the gospels as biographies. Why do we need to adjust the lens? 
Yeah, it's a really, really good question. You know, we tend to read these first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we call the Gospels, almost exclusively for theology, what they have to say about God, and for ethics, right? The right way to live. Mm. But we can forget that they are also biographies of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And think about how we read other biographies, right? I'm reading Will Smith's autobiography right now, which is vulgar, but terrific. So good. (laughs) So good. And, you know, yeah, I'm paying attention to, you know, the the main events or whatever, but I'm paying attention to his daily habits and routines. Mm. How does this world-class creative operate? What time does he wake up? What's his creative process like? And we don't have to wonder about these things with Jesus of Nazareth. We have four historically reliable biographies of his life. And I think when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through that lens, you're going to see the way of Jesus. You're going to see the way he walked, the way he stewarded the same 24-hour day that you and I have to steward today. As I was reading Redeeming Your Time, I was excited to learn not only through the book, but then some of the bonus videos I was checking out on your website that you use OmniFocus as your commitment tracking system tool of choice. And when I say I use OmniFocus, I can't really say I used OmniFocus, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And so your book inspired me to kind of get my act together there. I'm at inbox zero as of this morning. So so kudos to me for that. But talk about the importance of of using one commitment tracking system and, and why email is a terrible tool for this. Yeah. So this is all said around chapter two, principle two, let your yes be yes, right? Mm. Jesus commanded that our yes be yes. And for a lot of us, it's not because we're making commitments in so many different places, right? We're sending emails, promising that we're going to send a report by the end of the week, right? And it's like saved in like a flagged email in Gmail, or we got post-it notes everywhere. And for a lot of us, we have these to-dos just floating around in our minds. That's the only place where we have them. The problem is when all of these to do is what I call what David Allen calls in getting things done, um, open loops are Mm. in a bunch of different places. It causes a phenomenal amount of anxiety and stress. To prove my point, think back to the last time you simply had to make a to do list. Right. It was like, uh, you know, two days before you left the office for vacation. Mm. It was a week before your wedding, whatever you sat down. You wrote down all the things on the list and you got to the end and you felt a sense of calm and peace, even though you didn't complete a single action on the list. What's the point? These things being stored in our email inboxes alone and our brains alone are causing us stress. The solution, though, isn't that we have to complete all the tasks. We just have to have to externalize them out of those temporary containers, out of our heads and into a trusted external system. And then the water is calm. I call that system a commitment tracking system. Uh, And OmniFocus, the software you mentioned, Jeff, is the software that I use for my tool for my commitment tracking system. And in the book, I'm showing readers how to build and maintain a commitment tracking system so that number one, their yes can be yes 99 out of 100 times. Mm. And number two, they can be productive and at peace and calm with far less anxiety as they're doing their work and living their life. So we've got these open loops and we've gathered those into our 
inbox list, which is one of three lists you, you recommend. We track inbox lists, projects lists, actions list. So we want to move those open loops in the inbox list into well-defined work on the projects list, the actions. What are some, some of the questions that we can ask to make that process maybe seamless or a little, little easier to, to, to grapple with? Yeah. So first, let me, let me offer some definitions. So I define an open loop as anything big or small, personal or professional, urgent or near or distant that you have any level of internal commitment to do, right? For example, I need to turn in the manuscript for my next book by X date. It's a big commitment. Or I promised my kids that I was going to make them Minnie Mouse waffles tomorrow morning, right? These are all open loops, big and small. Your brain doesn't treat them any differently. So the first step, If you want to let your yes be yes and feel peace doing it, you got to get all of those open loops in a single place. Take them out of your email, take them out of your head, take them out of your post-it notes and put them on this inbox list in your commitment tracking system, right? And then it's not enough just to dump things onto your inbox list. You've got to take those open loops and define them into really well-defined projects and actions, as you said, Jeff. So real quick, Five questions to take an amorphous open loop and turn it into something well-defined. Let's use the Minnie Mouse waffle example, okay? Question number one, am I still committed to closing this open loop? Yes, I promised my kids I'm going to make the Minnie Mouse waffles. I'm still committed. Question number two, what is my actual desired outcome? Because when I look at the item on my inbox list, it's probably just going to say like Minnie Mouse waffles, right? But that's not something I can do. My actual desired outcome is to make my daughter's Minnie Mouse waffles this Saturday. Great. That's question two. Question number three, will it take more than one action to close this open loop? So for this one, for me, it actually will uh, because um, I, I, I typically sleep in on Saturdays. I wake up with my kids every other morning, but I sleep in on Saturdays and my wife gets up with the kids. So I know I got to set an alarm to wake up early on Saturday morning to make waffles for my kids. And then I got to make waffles for my kids. Mm -hmm. And because it has more than one action associated with it, I'll take that open loop loop off of my inbox list and put it on what I call my projects list. And a project in this workflow is simply any desired outcome that's going to take more than one action to complete. So I got my project, make the kids Minnie Mouse waffles, right? Then I move on to question number four. What's the next action I've got to take in order to close that open loop? Well, the next action I could take is to set an alarm to tell my wife, there's actually two actions, tell my wife I'm waking up early tomorrow morning and she can sleep in. And number two, uh, set an alarm so that I can wake up and remember to make Minnie Mouse waffles. And then the final question, question number five is, Will it take less than two minutes to complete this action? And if it does, do it right then. So it takes me less than two minutes to set my alarm. So when I come across this open loop item, I'm just going to define, I'm going to do that action right then. Mm -hmm. If it takes more than two minutes, you're going to just put it on an actions list in your commitment tracking system. So you can do it when you're in, when you've got enough time to complete that action. I know that sounds like a lot and people are like, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. It would take me all day to manage this system. But we're actually all already asking these questions. Right. (laughs) Right. The difference is you're batching the work with this methodology and asking these questions of all of your open loops at once 
when they show up rather than when they blow up and there's a problem and a crisis. That's why so many of us are putting out fires all the time because we mm. haven't taken the time to convert these amorphous open loops into well-defined actions we can actually execute. Mm. Now, this is the point where it breaks down for a lot of people, meaning that they, 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 they do like me in the last 24 hours, they got the inbox zero and they're putting everything where it's supposed to go. And then it all falls apart because... Yeah. They're not committing to a daily and a weekly workflow for maintaining the CTS. Uh, what's your personal process like for, say, your weekly review? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm doing it in a little bit this afternoon. It takes about 45 minutes. It's very simple. I look at my calendar for the past week to see if there are any open loops that I failed to collect into my commitment tracking system. Mm. Right. So maybe... Uh, Maybe Jeff and I on today's podcast, maybe I promise to send Jeff something in the mail. I'll look back at my calendar and say, oh, right, I forgot. I need to send Jeff that thing. And I'll put it in my commitment tracking system on my inbox list. I'll look ahead two weeks on my calendar to see if there are any uh, open loops that I need to collect and start working on in the next week. And then I just look through all of the projects in my commitment tracking system. And if I've completed the actions, I check them off. But if there's still an open loop. If there's still a project to find a no next action, I'll define the next action for that project, mm -hmm. right? And then at the end of the day, I just look at that and say, okay, great. What am I going to do next week? And I start planning out the next week, plugging in some of those projects and actions from my commitment tracking system into my calendar, or what I call in the book, my time budget template. Uh, so I'm predefining where I'm going to spend my time in the coming week. There is a chapter uh, that deals with just the, the daily noise that we all have to contend with. And I think uh, this is a chapter where, and you probably mentioned him several times, Deep Work by Cal Newport is referenced yeah. here, one of my favorite books. Uh, you mentioned David Allen, Peter Drucker is also yeah. referenced. As I'm reading Redeeming Your Time, I recall that a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, I was at my local library for a, a used book sale. They, they do these every so often to raise money. And I picked up an original copy of Getting Things Done, which I had read years ago or listened to years ago and needed to revisit. And also Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive, original copy from 1966, I think it is. Wow. And I'd forgotten I'd even had them until I'm reading your book. I got them two <laughs> years ago, set them aside. I'll read those eventually. And right now they're sitting right next to me right now on my desk. Yeah. Those are my next books I'm going to read thanks yeah. to you. Yeah. So uh, with regard to noise, what are some practical tips that you'd recommend for just dealing with the, the daily nonsense? Yeah. So first, let me define noise so we make sure we all know what we're talking about, right? Like, Obviously, I'm referring to the external noise that's created by our digital devices, push notifications on our laptops and our phones, nonstop news services, etc. But primarily, I'm referring to what all of that external noise creates, which is this internal noise mm. that blocks our ability to think and to be creative and to prioritize our to-do list. There's a reason why we all have our most creative ideas in the shower, because it's pretty much the last place on earth that's not totally drenched in noise, right? So I mentioned before, there's 32 practices spread out across these seven chapters. Nine of them are in this chapter mm. called Descent from the Kingdom of Noise, because we need a lot of practice here. So let me just share the one that's been the most life-changing for me, practice number one of chapter three. Um, let your friends curate the news for you. Mm. I partially borrowed this from Tim Ferriss in the four hour work week, but basically six years ago, 
I went from being a total news junkie addict Guilty. to consuming, yeah, to consuming zero news period. Mm-hmm. I listen to no podcasts. I read <gasps> no news websites. I know no news websites. I'm now, I, I wasn't when I read the book, but I now spend almost no time on social media. Mm-hmm. So I don't see the news, but here's the funny thing. And the thing I wish somebody had told me before, when I stopped reading the news, my friends started curating the pieces of information that actually mattered to my life and my work, right? <laughs> uh, for example, one of my favorite writers, this guy named Tim Keller, tweeted that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, right? I don't spend any time on Twitter anymore. But here's the deal. Eight of my friends texted me that news within 10 minutes of him mm. posting that tweet. Mm. I live in Florida. Hurricanes are important to me. I hear about every hurricane. I hear about race riots. I hear about media trends. I'm a, I'm a Taylor Swift fan. So I hear about every single surprise Taylor <laughs> Swift album dropped. And I hear about all of these things without having to spend a single moment waiting through the 99% of content on social and news services that is anxiety inducing, number one, and number two, totally irrelevant to my life and to my work, yeah. right? I, don't, I, I know this is an extreme approach. And most of you listening are like, I could never do this. That's fine. If you're not going to do this, take a much more moderate approach and just stop swimming in infinity pools of content, right? Infinity pools are Instagram stories and news websites that seamlessly scroll from one meaningless story to the next. (laughs) Instead, confine yourself to finite pools, of content, right? A daily news roundup podcast or email newsletter. Uh, heaven forbid, at the risk of sounding like I'm 90, a <laughs> physical newspaper. Crazy idea, right? Yeah. But, but I'll tell you what, in this world today, there's a lot of beauty in that New York Times masthead, which says it's all the news that's fit to print. It fits in a confined box, right? <laughs> I love it. So anyways, just a couple of tips for dissenting from the kingdom of noise. I gave up news and then soon after broadcast television pretty much all together about five or six years ago. It's something that I did not think was possible. But to your point, uh, you may think Jordan and I are nuts, but it is possible. The only time I dip my toe in the water of broadcast television is football season. I'm I'm an NFL fan and I watch games when they're on, which anymore is Sunday and Monday and Thursday. (laughs) 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 But that's the only that's the only time I'm watching television and, and news I've cut out. If, if I get any news at all, it might be the little seven minute tidbit version on a YouTube video or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Let me ask you this, Jeff. Maybe it's hard to remember going back five years now, but what was the effect on your psyche and mm. your life and your work? Not, 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 not the things you missed out on, but what were the positive effects of just cutting the, cutting the cord here? Well, the positive effects were far less stress uh, you, you mentioned the anxiety inducing, you know, 24 hour news and all that kind of stuff. I was into so much of that and just mad all the time about something, you know, I will say this, my wife used to often ask me like, are, are you angry about something? <laughs> and, I, and I would have to stop and think of, well, she's probably right about that. What is the thing I'm angry about? And then I would think back to something I had watched or read. And my wife doesn't ask me that uh, very often anymore. Yeah, that's good. It's a good word. Listen to this. I I mentioned this in the book. According to Time Magazine, more than half of Americans say the news causes them stress Mm. and anxiety. Yet 
one in 10 adults checks the news every hour. And 20% of Americans report, quote, constantly (laughs) monitoring social media and the news. We are literally making ourselves anxious and then wondering why we're so stressed out. Yeah, yeah. This is crazy. One thing you touched on that I loved, I I once heard a pastor say, if your vision doesn't scare you, it's probably an insult to, to God. What are some reasons you feel we need to set bigger, more epic goals for ourselves than what we typically do? Oh, man, this is such a good question. Um, I'll just rattle off a couple. Number one, um, big goals, in my experience, are easier to achieve than smaller goals. I've raised a lot of venture capital in my life. It is easier to raise $5 million of venture capital than it is to raise $500,000. You know why? Because everybody's trying to raise $500,000. Very <laughs> few people are audacious enough to think that they can raise $5 million, right? Number two, and this is probably the biggest one, honestly, bigger goals make it easier to say no to things. Mm. If somebody comes to me and they're like, Jordan, I just can't say no to stuff. I'm always saying yes to coffee meetings or whatever that I know I should be saying no to. My first question is, what is your big, hairy, audacious goal for your work? And almost always to say, I don't have one. I'm like, that's the problem. Because if you've got a burning yes, okay, for me, I'll just share mine publicly, right? By the end of 2025, I want to sell a million books. That's a big, hairy, audacious goal. And guess yeah. what? With that in view, it enables me to say no to a lot <laughs> of other things because I am fired up about that goal because I know what it means for the impact that I want to have in the world, right? Here's the last one. Number three, even if you set a really big, hairy, audacious goal, and you fail, it is almost impossible to fail entirely, right? Sergey Brin and Larry Page at Google have talked a lot about this, right? Like this is the thing people don't get about big goals. If you're setting bigger goals, it's going to stretch you. And even if you fail, you will likely have made much more progress to that end than if you had held back and set a smaller goal. It's easier to get an internship with the White House. Yes. I tell the story in the book. Yeah. I love that. You love that. Yeah. So real quick, I, I went to school, Florida state it was part of a terrific public relations program. It's like crazy talented people. And I can't remember if there was a require. there must've been a requirement to get an internship because we were all going after internships. Right. Mm. And my colleagues in the program, there were only like 35 of us. They were all competing for the exact same, like let's call it 10 internships in Tallahassee all of these like local PR agencies, whatever. And I was audacious, arrogant, whatever you want to call it enough to say, you know what? I think I can get an internship at the White House. And so I applied by God's grace alone. I truly mean that I got in. Mm. And when I went to DC, I was expecting my fellow interns to be like head and shoulders smarter and more talented than my friends back at Florida State. Guess what? They weren't. (laughs) <laughs> Not at all. They were just more audacious, mm. right? They were setting bigger and hairier and more audacious goals mm. for their careers. There's a, a chapter called Embracing Productive Rest, uh, which on the surface sounds like an oxymoron, but, yeah. but what, does the, uh, what does the science say about that process or that idea? Yeah, the science says there's an overwhelming amount of science and data here that there are at least three God-designed rhythms of rest that make us counterintuitively more productive towards our goals. Number one, what I call bi-hourly breaks, B-I hyphen hourly breaks, taking breaks 
roughly every two hours in between blocks of deep work throughout the day. It makes you way more productive for the next block. Number two, fighting for an eight-hour sleep opportunity every night. Everybody's heard the data here. Mm. Uh, I think we love to ignore it, but it's pretty <laughs> overwhelming data, right? right? And then finally, and this one has the least data. We're starting to get more of it. Sabbath, mm. this old ancient biblical idea of working hard for six days and resting one, they're starting to be data sets out there that suggest that even this is making us more productive those other six days. And as a Christian, this doesn't surprise me. Works for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> look at Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A is a great example of this, right? When yeah. Chick-fil-A started, a lot of people don't remember this. Back in the early days, Chick-fil-A was only in malls, only in food courts, mm. right? And they had a crazy hard time getting mall tenants to allow them to open up stores in the malls because they refused to be open up seven days a week. Uh, and the mall tenants were like, there's no possible way that you can generate enough revenue in, in six days instead of seven. Well, guess what? Mm. Chick-fil-A crushes, obliterates the sales numbers mm. of every other restaurant in these markets, in these malls. And now Malls are begging Chick-fil-A uh, to open up shop in their in their locations. Mm. I've got a couple of questions, Jordan, in the time we have left. And gosh, we've packed so much into a relatively brief period of time. Kudos to you on that. Uh, but a couple of questions I want to ask, not directly related to this book. Before yeah. I do that, anything else from redeeming your time that you'd like for us to know? Maybe from the epilogue, which I thought was real interesting, or any chapters that we haven't covered? Yeah, I'll, I'll end on the, the, the note of this epilogue. I call it the dark side of discipline. Discipline's a good thing. I think we all know that intuitively. And there's even support for this in scripture. Jesus was crazy disciplined with his time on earth. But our human tendency is to turn good things into ultimate things. And when we do that, they can suck the life out of us and out of our relationships, right? So when when I am prioritizing discipline over everything else in my life, it leads to really, really bad things. So there are two signs that I'm always on the lookout for to know that I've crossed over to the dark side of discipline. <laughs> Number one is when I can't extend grace to others who are less disciplined than me, mm. right? You know, somebody shows up late to a meeting or drops a ball on a project because their commitment tracking system isn't as robust as mine. I'll never say it out loud, but internally, on my worst days, I can find myself seething with this self-righteous anger that's really just trying to mask the fact that I know I've made the exact same mistake before, right? right. And in these scenarios, I've got to remember that everything I've been given in my life, including my ability to be disciplined, is a gift from God, mm -hmm. right? I, God has graciously brought software into my life, books, mentors who have made me productive, I'm not responsible for any of it. And that helps me stay on the, the right side of discipline. Here's the second symptom that I've crossed over to the dark side of discipline. When I'm unable to extend grace to myself, right? Mm. You know, if, I, if I fail to meet my goals for the quarter, my objectives and key results, or um, I fail to get my coveted eight hours of sleep every night, <laughs> I, I could just find myself beating myself up and really self-loathing quite a bit. Mm. And there, I got to remember what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. I believe that I'm a child of God. And that gives me peace regardless of the performance because parents love their kids regardless of whether or not they bring an A home from school or a C, 
right? And so again, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, I would just urge you to find something where you can find the verdict for your life, the verdict for your work outside of the performance. I believe the only answer to that question is in Jesus Christ, but I would beg you to find an answer to that question. Otherwise, eventually, I think all of us end up devastated. So that's what I would say about the dark side of discipline. It's something I always struggle with, and I think I always will, but I'm, I'm working at it. I, I love that perspective, and it's one I don't often see talked about. So, so thank you for, for sharing that. I'm going to ask you a question that is probably, as a book lover, an incredibly difficult question <laughs> to answer. You reference a lot of your favorite works and books in, in your book. What's a book or two that maybe you find yourself recommending to other people often because of its impact yeah. on you? Is there one that jumps to mind? Yeah, um, there is. The conversation we were just having, having about turning discipline into an ultimate thing. Mm. Um, the book that really changed my perspective on this was a book called Counterfeit Gods by this pastor in Manhattan named Timothy Keller, who I just think is the most intellectually engaging writer from Christianity of our, of our time, maybe, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's really good. He, he writes it in a way that's very accessible to Christians and non-Christians alike. And I, I recommend that book a lot. Another one that's just like pure fun, but I cannot stop recommending. I read it probably every year is Shoe Dog by Phil mm-hmm. Knight, the, the mm-hmm. creation of Nike. I just, anytime I find myself falling out of love with books, I'll read Shoe Dog and fall in love with words again. It, mm-hmm. It's the most poetic, beautifully written business book, but it, it's, it's just a heck of a story. There are no lessons. There are no three points. It's just a beautiful narrative about the founding of one of the great American brands. I know your other book that's actually newer than the one we just talked about, Book for Adults Disguised <laughs> as a Children's Book, I believe. Basically, yes. Uh, yeah. tell, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, it's called The Creator in You. And I wrote it because I got three young daughters and I've read them so many books about the creation account, the biblical creation account that you find in Genesis 1, the first uh, first chapter of the Bible. And all these books, I'm sure if you're listening, you've read some of these books, right? They all follow the same pattern. God created this on day one. He created that on day two, day three, four, five, six, the end. And these <laughs> books drive me bonkers because according to the Bible, the sixth day wasn't the end of creation. It was just the beginning. It's when God passed the baton to human beings and said, hey, I made you to look like me, to act and create and work like I do. So go fill this world. It says in the book, um, because while in six days, God created a lot. There are so many things that he simply did not, like bridges and baseballs, sandcastles and s'mores. God asked (laughs) us to create and fill the planet with more. And after this line, this kind of the passing the baton scene in the book, you just see this beautiful montage with this, these epic illustrations that I have nothing to do with of the kids <laughs> doing work with joy. They're starting lemonade stands. They're starting businesses. They're creating art and tree forts and spaceships and culture. And the message of the book is, yeah, work is hard, but work is inherently good because God himself worked. 
and he called us to work. And my hope is that when kids hear that message, again, coupled with the just gorgeous artwork from this book, they're going to view their current work, whether it's chores or homework or art projects in their future careers with purpose and joy. And I can vouch for that. The artwork is gorgeous. I've got it in front of me, illustrated by Jonathan David, by the way, written by our guest, Jordan Rayner, along with the book we've been spending much of our time talking about, Redeeming Your Time, Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive, Filled with Plosives galore. <laughs> All the peas. That's right. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I meant it when I said uh, this book is at the top of my list for productivity books. Numero uno on my list until somebody comes and knocks it off. And I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Jeff. As you may have heard me mention toward the beginning of my chat with Jordan, he's got some great bonus resources available at his website when you purchase his book. I found those hugely valuable. I'll put a link, of course, to Jordan's book and the books he recommended uh, on the show notes page for this episode. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 422 for episode 422. And also remember, readtoleadpodcast.com slash cohort while space is still potentially available. Again, I don't know at this moment right now, as you're hearing this, if spots are available for my founding member note-taking mastery cohort beginning in June. It's half price for founding members. It'll never be at this price again, and only 20 people are going to get in. Perfect for you if you want to learn how to better capture, organize, distill, and express your notes and leverage a true personal knowledge management system. So when you go to create, you never find yourself starting with a blank page ever again. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash cohort right now. Hey, thanks for giving a listen to this week's episode. I so appreciate it. I hope you'll be back next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.